This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And on this Monday show, we've got a lot to discuss. A lot to dive into from a recruiting perspective, from a football perspective, from men's and women's basketball perspectives. Lots to get to in today's show. Now, real quick, if you are a subscriber to DuckTerritory.com, I appreciate you. Uh, Eric appreciates you. Kevin appreciates you for subscribing. Thank you very much. If you're not, you can get a 50% off an annual VIP membership. That comes out to $53.70. It bills out over the, you know, one time, but over the course of each month, you would be paying $4.48. Uh, that, that's a huge deal because a month to month deal right now is $9.95. And if you're not ready to commit to an annual membership and, and pay $53.70 up front, you can subscribe for $1 for your first month and then after that it bumps up to $9.95. I do want to remind people out there, though, if you're looking for the CBS All Access uh, addition to that, you will be able to get that for free. That that streaming service through CBS, 10,000 shows, movies, on-demand, live sports when sports comes back, all commercial free, you will be able to get that for free once you start paying your regular price. So if you subscribe for an annual membership after your first year is up, you'll get the CBS All Access. Or if you go month to month, after your first month of $1 is over uh, and you're paying $9.95 per month, you can get CBS All Access. So, Eric, it's, it's kind of crazy because there's no sports going on, yet sports continues to create storylines and and we had some breaking news that happened later in the week of last week. And I don't know from from my perspective, from someone who has kind of just consumed Oregon women's basketball um, as a fan and not necessarily a, a, a full-time media reporter um, on this team as, as you have, uh, Lucy Cochran and uh, Holly Winterburn have both announced that they would be transferring from the women's basketball program after their freshman seasons. Two highly regarded international players uh, that came into the program, but at the same time, two players that didn't necessarily find consistent playing time at Oregon. No fault of their own, I think, just because of the players that were ahead of them. Um, but they've elected to transfer. And when that news came to me, I was like, oh, yeah, that doesn't necessarily surprise me considering how little they played last season and who's coming in. But as someone who's got their ear to the ground as best as possible on this women's program, did this surprise you? Was this a big shock? I don't think it was a big shock by any means. I think – you're right in terms of the opportunity, in terms of the lack of playing time. I mean, we saw it with both those players down the stretch of this last season, um, especially I think with Winterburn, a player who was kind of like a fringe rota- rotational player in non-conference play, uh, basically didn't have much of a role over the course of the last 10 to 12 games of the season. And of course she plays in those games because Oregon's winning by 20, 30, 40 points, but 
she's seeing minutes when the game is out of hand. Uh, maybe she sees a couple minutes at the end of the first half, but more than likely she's playing in fourth quarters when the score is extremely lopsided in Oregon's favor. So um, it makes sense from that perspective. It also makes sense. I, I think a lot of people who've listened to our podcast, followed the team somewhat closely, recognize that the recruiting and how that's taken an uptick even from 2019 to 2020, where, you know, you mentioned Winterburn and Cochran, and we should say Jazz Shelley was the, the third part of that international trio. Those are all really highly regarded players, like you said, but I don't know if I would say Winterburn or Cochran are quite on that same level uh, as this, you know, quintet of five-star recruits that are coming in. And then you also, with Cochran, you look at who they return and two players that were sitting out this year. And if you listen to our interview with Kelly Graves, you know how exciting Sedona Prince is and that Nayara Sabali, Satu's younger sister. So from an opportunity perspective, there were certainly going to be limitations to what they could do. And my guess was they kind of saw the writing on the wall and said, hey, uh, we're probably better better suited to take off and uh, find another place to play for uh, the rest of our college careers rather than use a year at Oregon where – Maybe we win a job, but maybe we lose out to one of these highly regarded freshmen or players that were just redshirting who are either a year younger than we are or the same age as we are in terms of uh, eligibility, in which case you'd be looking up at uh, a couple of years where the players that are ahead of you on the ro- you know the roster aren't going anywhere, and, and that would make it very difficult to foresee either of them being a major contributors. So I, I think that that stuff makes a lot of sense in terms of like, hey, I just don't know if either of them really had a chance to really play all that much going forward. And, and, and you're right, it's not fault of either of them. Uh, Kelly Graves, I think, on the podcast we had, he said regarding Winterburn, like, I feel bad for her because she had to back up basically Sabrina and Satsu. Those are the players she's replacing, and those are pros, and it's hard to get them off the court. So um, I think it's a disappointment whenever you bring in these these talented players and they only last a year. But at the same time, uh, I don't think there should be a ton of concern going forward about the implications of this, not because they're not talented players, but because Oregon has plenty of talented players still on the roster. Now, when we look at the roster makeup of this team, Sedona Prince and, like you said, Naria Sobley were both redshirting, or I guess Sobley wasn't because she was hurt, but right. um, she was hurt for basically the entire year. Kelly Graves did come on this podcast last week and say that they were going to go and, and play her. We don't know how much, but they were going to play her in the NCAA tournament. Uh, and she would have been a redshirt freshman. But both of those players were in the same class as Cochran and as Winterburn. And so from a roster makeup perspective for the women's team, they still have three sophomores in Jazz Shelley, Sedona Prince, and Naria Sobley. Um, is that a good core group? I mean, because you look at this team and, and you've got Aaron Bully coming back next year. They're – She's she's a senior, and and you're going to count on her. You're going to lean on her. But from a long-term perspective, her impact for the next three or four years isn't going to be very great because she's just she's with the team for one more year. Now she can help set the tone for the next two or three four years. But roster makeup for the next two or three years, this sophomore class is going to be a big chunk of of your team along with uh, Taylor Chavez, who's a junior next season. Um, is, is that core, you know, that, that four group, is that an ideal, I guess, leader of the pack, if you will? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's gonna be really interesting, cause a lot of, I mean, every player you mentioned there is basically, I don't wanna say unproven, but unproven in the role they're probably gonna step into, with maybe right. the exception of Aaron Boley, where maybe Aaron Boley remains kind of just a, she hangs out in the corner and is just a dead-eye sharpshooter, or maybe she takes on a greater role. I'm actually really curious to see, 
what 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 her capabilities are because we've seen her now for a couple of years at Oregon and her one year at Notre Dame be really just kind of sit in the corner and and make threes or sit at the top of the key wherever she's on the court and just drain threes. But can she put the ball on the floor and become a little bit more assertive offensively? I don't know. Um, and then the same thing is the case for Taylor Chavez going from being sixth player of the year in the conference, the, the conference's leading three-point shooter. I, I think a player you have to be really excited about having watched her this past season just, just seem to be developed and never be afraid of the moment. But is she going to be capable of being a more ball-dominant player? Because a lot of the points she scored, similar to Bowley, were off the catch and shoot. Is she going to be someone who can put the ball down and get to the rim, You know, hit the mid-range shot? Can she do those kind of things? Um, we don't really know yet. So there, I think there's uncertainty. And then, of course, with the two players that you mentioned that are redshirting or, or sitting out this year, uh, we know even less because we haven't seen them play at all. So I think there's a ton of uncertainty and a ton of like mystery around what this core will look like next year, especially when you then include all the freshmen who've never played at this level. At the same time, that the caliber of player is so high on this roster where you've got seven to eight five-star recruits on top of, you know, you, you talk about a Jazz Shelley who... I've you know heard off the record she would have been a five star recruit if she was the American player she was one of the top players in that class you know in terms of she's the best probably the best international player but if she played in the United States she would probably have been a five star too so you can maybe add a number there too so you've got eight or nine five star caliber players on the roster next year the talent's there but it's just a matter of how does this all work together and I think that's actually what makes it so exciting and going to be such a fun season is that reality of like. We think they've got all of this talent, but we really don't know how it all works together. So um, that's certainly something that'll be really interesting to follow over the next couple months. As will, do they continue to add any pieces to this roster? Which is, I think, something that you know Kelly Graves said they're never afraid to continue adding. And don't be surprised. I think based upon what I've heard, if they do go out and, and add a grad transfer here, I don't think there's a prep player available. But if they take a, a grad transfer like a Minion Moore last season, they find somebody out there who can be a veteran who can help. I don't think that's something you can discount either. And whoever that player is, their role on the team can also be quite significant based upon who's returning. Yeah, I was, that leads us into my next question before we wrap up on the women's side and go to the men. What's kind of the target for Oregon this offseason? Obviously, Kelly Graves said that, um, you know, they're active in the tra- transfer market. They're trying to, they're trying to see who's out there and, um, they will continue to do that. What would make sense for them to go out and add? I think a forward with some versatility would make some sense. You think about what Satu was, where she was kind of technically maybe playing the small forward, but also a little bit of the power forward. I'm not sure you can go find a player who's 6'4 with the ability to play inside and out like her, because frankly, there just aren't a lot of players uh, with that skill set, which is why she's such a highly regarded draft prospect. But I think if you could find like a perimeter player who can give you some minutes at the two and the three. Maybe she can handle the ball. Maybe she can play a little power four, but just some of some versatility. I think that would be, you know, massively beneficial. And then I also think somebody who's capable of being a top tier defensive player. And I don't want to discount the caliber of defenders that are returning because um, Taylor Chavez, I do think is a good defensive player. Um, I think Jazz Shelley can become a good defensive player. Um, and I know there are some players in this recruiting class that people, yeah, that I've, re- I've heard, Similar things that they can be really high caliber uh, on that side of the court, but I think finding a, another like a perimeter player who can fit that kind of mignon more role of she's really going to be dominant on that side of the floor as well as contributing on the other side I think makes a lot of sense and it'll be interesting to see kind of how this plays out and, and what the impacts of the COVID nineteen uh, you know kind of recruiting freeze has on these grad transfer market as well. But 
I certainly think you can expect Oregon to add someone there, and I think you'll see them add a you know competent, high caliber, highly accomplished player um, who's a perimeter you know kind of oriented player. Because I do think ultimately, even though we just saw Lucy Cochran transfer and you've seen a couple other players graduate, I think there's enough talent up front. Um, all right, Matt. Let's like you said a second ago. Let's switch gears here and talk a little bit on the men's side. Um, obviously, there are going to be like we see it, like I was just talking on the women's side, some interest in some grad transfers, maybe some other recruits. What does the men's side need to add, or do you think they need to add a player? And do you think they maybe even need to add more than one? You know, I, I think when you look at Oregon's roster as it is, and today, like, you have to go into the idea, when we, when we talk about Oregon basketball and the men's side and are looking at spring recruiting, you have to understand that there could always be a transfer. There could always be a guy that goes pro. But that being said, as of today on April 6th at 10.15 in the morning Pacific time, that none of that has happened. And so we are going to look at this as current, you know, up-to-date standards. And that's Oregon has three available scholarships. They have one verbal commitment in the 2020 recruiting class. And Jalen Terry, he will take one of those three. And so Oregon has two available spots left. It could grow. It, it, it might not grow uh, in terms of how many players that they can add. But as of today, they have two available spots left. And I think this is why I'm so high on Oregon repeating as Pac-12 champions next season, even though they lose Peyton Pritchard, Chris Duarte, or Peyton Pritchard, Shakur Justin, and Anthony Mathis, is that and, and Pritchard being a you know an All American, uh, being that they are extremely experienced compared to everybody else in the conference for the most part. Will Richardson is coming back. He will be a third year junior on the team. He's you know he has started basically a third to a half the season of his first two years. Chris Duarte is back and. I think Duarte has the makeup of being an all-conference Pac-12 player of the year type player uh, as a senior next season. You've got Infale Dante, who will be healthy. You have Chandler Lawson, who was, you know, kind of secured a spot in the starting lineup. Addison Patterson came on strong. And then you've got some really big-time transfers becoming eligible, and Eric Williams of Duquesne and Eugene Umari of Rutgers, two guys who were their respected you know, team's best player, being added into the mix, I, I think Oregon is experienced and they have a good core coming back. And so you could look at Oregon's roster right now and say without adding anybody else besides Jalen Terry, they are in a good spot because yeah. they've got experience coming back. They have players coming back. They have key guys that could be go-to players, all-conference caliber guys. I think they've got four of them or five of them really. You've, you've gotten Fale Dante. If he's healthy, we've seen what he could do. And if, if he can extrapolate that over an entire season, he could be an all-conference player. I think Will Richardson and Chris Duarte have high probabilities of being all-conference players. And then the transfers, Eric Williams and, and Eugene Umari being all-conference caliber guys. So I look at Oregon from an off-season perspective, and I've taken a long time to get here, but it explains it. They don't necessarily need to go out and find and, and take a grad transfer just to take a grad transfer. I mean, they've got needs, no doubt. I, I think they could 
use some extra shooting on the perimeter at the guard position. I think it would be helpful to have another ball handler on the rotation. Uh, it, it would help to have uh, a guy that can block shots like a Kenny Wooten or a, or a Jordan Bell or a Chris Boucher before him. But maybe that's Infale Dante, a, a healthy Infale Dante. Um, I, the thing is, is Oregon's got a lot of things, a lot of guys coming back, a lot of guys with certain skill sets coming back that they can be very choosy and picky on what they go after in the grad transfer and the high school, in the other transfer markets and, you know, Juco players and reclass. And I think it's more of Dana Altman and his coaching staff are taking an approach of, can they find the best player out there that just makes them overall better than necessarily filling a particular hole? Because I don't think they have this glaring hole on their roster. Yeah, my follow-up was going to be, do you look at the way, and obviously they're not going to have a Peyton Pritchard on next year's roster, but do you think overall maybe this team could smooth out some of the holes it has? I mean, I feel like Pritchard had to make up for some pretty glaring issues on that roster, but do you think next year's team, maybe at least from a depth perspective, from a versatility perspective, could be a little bit stronger than what we just saw? I think interior with the addition of Eugene Omari and a healthy and follow Dante that will have an off season of some kind of off season to you know work with the staff and whatnot. I think that will help shore up their in, their interior defense, rim protection, the rebounding. Um, I Eugene Mari is a better version of Shakur Justin in every capacity, and I'm not trying to just you know be negative towards Shakur Justin, but e- Eugene is a guy that that at Rutgers was a double-double machine uh, in the Big Ten, you know, one of the best conferences in, in in the country. And he did it at Rutgers being asked to be the guy. He's going to step on the court next season and be one of Oregon's best players. Eric Williams averaged 14 and 7. You know, that that hasn't happened very often. And then I look at I look at Chris Duarte. I, I really think if Duarte comes back, and look, this is a guy that's going to have to make a decision. Does he want to put his name into the draft pool and get feedback from overseas, get feedback from the NBA. And cause I think, I truly think he's an NBA prospect, but if he comes back to school and he hasn't decided yet, if he comes back to school, he's going to have a chance to be the Pac-12 player of the year because there were three players last season that averaged 12.9 points, 5.4 rebounds and one and a half steals and one and a half assists per game. Three guys. Trace Tinkle of Oregon State, C.J. Ellaby of Washington State, and Chris Duarte of Oregon. Ellaby and Tinkle were all-conference first-team players in the, in the Pac-12, and if they were on better teams, would have had a better chance at putting up you know, Pac-12 Player of the Year numbers, and they would have been in contention for that. I think Duarte could, you know, with being on a better team than what those two guys are, if, if Duarte comes back and can – improve his numbers just a little bit across the board, he's going to be a guy that's going to have a chance to win Pac-12 Player of the Year. And so, yeah, they've, they're going to have better depth. Addison Patterson, look what he did late in the year. You know, Once he figured out his role and how to play within the system, now he does that over the course of the entire season. Yeah, they're, they're going to be fine. All right, let's... I, I, real quick, before we take a break, I do think, um, they will go and look for grad transfers. 
there also is a better probability in my mind that they go out and they find one or two or maybe someone goes pro or maybe someone transfers out of the program and they they add three guys that are four-year to four-year transfers, meaning they have to sit out a year. I mean, they're they're already a finalist for Landers Nolly. He's probably one of the best transfer prospects out there. And this goes back to my theory of just find the best players possible because he's a wing type six foot seven guy and he averaged like 15 points a game as a redshirt freshman at Virginia Tech he was an all-conference player they're in the mix for Aaron Estrada the MAAC player uh, freshman of the year out of St. Peter's uh, a conference in the northeast that produces a ton of really good guards and it's a very underrated league and he was the Final, he, he was a, the player of the year from a freshman perspective in that conference. Syracuse and Creighton are the other schools. And um, Tyrese Martin from Rhode Island is another guy that's a sophomore. He's transferring, averaged, I think, 14 points a wing. Um, he's going to have to sit out a year. They're a finalist there. Decision could be coming soon there. And then I think, you know, there's a couple other guys. Joshua Morgan from Long Beach Poly, uh, from Long Beach Spa- uh, State, excuse me. You know, six foot eleven post player blocks a ton of shots. Um, it was a redshirt freshman this past season, or a redshirt. It was a freshman this past season, so he'll he'll be a redshirt sophomore wherever he lands. Oregon's going to be a major player there, so they've got. I I think that's where they're going to go. Is they're going to find some transfers that are going to sit out because their current roster basically is is set and roll with who they've got coming back, lean on their experience, and then. They'll have a couple seniors on the roster, and they'll replace those seniors with transfers that set out the entire 2020-2021 season. All right, let's take a quick break. We come back. We spoke with Mario Cristobal last week. We'll discuss kind of what stood out the most from that 30-minute interview, as well as discuss some more on Anthony Brown and just how he shakes out at the quarterback position. Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Samphill, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Perry. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And all right, Eric, um, we we spoke with like 35 minutes with Mario Cristobal. Got a ton of stuff on him of just how the team is handling COVID, how he's personally handling COVID, kind of what the team can do with the players, what the team is going to do. And and, and look, Cristobal was not very receptive to speculating on no. potential comeback, you know, dates and resuming practice and whatnot. And I think that was I, I took I was very appreciative of that because we've got other coaches, we've got other media members out here saying football's not gonna happen, don't count on it. We've got other people on the other spectrum. Football's gonna happen. And there's and look, they're football coaches or they're media members. They're they're not scientists. They're 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 not doctors. They they're not involved in the in this process and while they can be informed, they're not 
leaders of, uh, you know, experts of that field and they're just guessing like everybody else, but because they've got a high profile name, everyone runs with it and it kind of just spreads some misinformation. So I, I was really appreciative of Chris Ball coming out and saying like, look, there's, there's so many factors at play here. We don't know what's going to happen and so many things could change. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to speculate, you know, when this could happen and when we come, could come back. Um, so I, I, A, I appreciated that. And then I appreciated a lot of the information that we got from him on just how the team and how the staff is coping. No, and I'm with you. And I'm not surprised that Cristobal's approach would be that way. He, I've always thought he was fairly pragmatic and fairly measured in the way he approaches questions and just thinking about things in general. I think that's something that comes, I think that's pretty clear if you watch him speak for five, ten minutes that that's, he's that type of person. So, and I agree. I, that he was hit with quite a few questions that were trying to like peg down some sort of timeline or what he thought was going to happen. And he, I thought, it, I thought he handled himself really well in terms of kind of keeping himself in arm's length and just saying we don't know. We, there's 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 no certainty. It's hard to there's no reason to try to make any predictions of what's going to happen. So yeah, I'm with you. I agree with you on that. And a lot he said a lot of things that were really interesting, as you would expect. And of course, I think things that he says are even amplified because there's you know we're a limited amount of information right now. With the, with the lack of actual, you know, sports going on. But I think the thing that stood out to, the most to me was just how, how interesting it's going to be to see how everyone comes back from this. And he talked about workouts right now are voluntary. They're not allowed to check up with the guys. They're not allowed to give them workout plans or coordinate workout plans. They're not allowed to have the players report back or send videos of them doing the workout plans to get some sort of feedback. Um, it's pretty limited in terms of what they can actually do to keep everybody in shape. But I thought a couple quotes, and of course, Cristobal's trying to find a way to use this as a positive. But he says, to me, this is almost the great culture test. It, I think, in all in all, it'll be a positive thing. Uh, and I think that's the way you kind of have to approach this is, hey, you send all your guys out, and there's a lot of them, and you say, hey, these are voluntary workouts. Do what you can to stay safe. He said they do have foam uh, foam rollers currently. And, uh, and bands for stretching. Those are the kind of the limitations of what they could actually send out with them. Um, but this is going to come down to kind of what they can do. And they know that these workouts are voluntary, but he also said that they know being great coming out of this is also voluntary. So um, I think you're sending out your players with a lot of trust that they're going to take this seriously and they're going to find ways to be uh, productive and safe. He said that a number of times. Safety is a key in terms of making sure they don't go out there and hurt themselves. But the majority of these workouts are going to be done, or all these workouts, I think, are going to be done basically at the homes of these players and their families. Like, uh, there was a couple questions asked about what facilities are available for them on campus, and Crystal said they're all closed. They're, the comp- campus is completely closed down. Um, they're not accessible at all, uh, and all these workouts are basically taking place at the homes. So I think that's interesting. I think it's going to be Curious to, to hear stories, you know, whenever it is that things kind of come back to normal about what these weeks and months um, are like in terms of how they stayed in shape, how that process went, what things worked, what things maybe didn't work. Um, but going into this kind of with the understanding that, yeah, this is very different, not just because there's no like actual football practice, but because actual football workouts, uh, the things that maybe you take for granted, the weightlifting that you might take for granted are right. also kind of not taking place either. Yeah, that's, you know, a lot of development in, is going to be put on the players themselves. And Cristobal talks exactly. a lot about the culture. And he brought that up a ton of this is going to test the culture of a program, not just as at his school, but 
in his program, but across the country. He, I mean, he didn't necessarily go out directly and say that it this way, but he came out a lot and talked about how programs, cultures are going to be tested and, and we're going to see of what programs have guys that can self-motivate, self-police and self-encourage and self, you know, develop without the guidance of coaching staffs because they can't they have no way of of being involved in this other than checking on their academic work and so there's going to be a huge emphasis on that of what teams have good cultures strong cultures and i think this is from an overall standpoint i mean think how many big voices the oregon football team has within that locker room right now especially on the defensive side of the football with thomas graham and diamade lenore and Kayvon Thibodeau and I, I, Isaac Slade, Brady Breeze, Nick Pickett. I mean, they've got a, a ton of guys, Jordan Scott, Austin Folio. You know, they've got a ton of guys that have played a lot of football at Oregon. I mean, I mentioned eight or nine guys right there, and only one of them was a guy that was a freshman last season in Kayvon Thibodeau. And so they're going to have a ton of guys that are experienced guys that have done it before, they've walked the walk, they've talked the talk that people will fall in line with if, if, you know, they get on, you know, Zoom or Face Chat, you know, FaceTime or something and continue to have the team working out individually. Offensively, you know, you've got Penny Sewell, you've got Johnny Johnson, you, you've got the, th- the, what, three junior running backs of CJ Verdell and Travis Dye and Cyrus Avila-Keo and, you know, yeah, you, you need to, find a quarterback and you need to find, you know, four offensive linemen, but you still have some guys that have gone through the trials and gone through the fires that can help pull, you know, keep the culture in place within this program. Now for me, that what really stood out to me was crystal ball still has to make a coaching hire. We still have to find a wide receivers coach and um, we don't know where Oregon when Oregon's going to hire that because he, you know, it's come out that there's a hiring freeze right now and that there's nothing that, that Oregon can do. I mean, Cristobal may have found his guy for all we know that I found him and they're literally just waiting for the hiring freeze at Oregon to be lifted so that they could hire him and spend that money. But with COVID right now, you know, the entire university is on a hiring freeze pretty much and, uh, it's, when that's in place, you're just, it, it's out of your control. And, and that goes back to what Cristobal talked about of, and you brought up of, you worry about the things that are, that are in your power and, and don't, don't spend a ton of time of, of worrying about what's not. And that's, you know, you, you can't make a hire because it's just not possible right now. So focus on other things. And one thing he did also, he also said that really stood out was he was, he came out and said that Tyler Shuck entered spring ball as a starting quarterback. And when they closed camp after four practices because of COVID, he emerged out of those four as the starting quarterback as well. And the caveat there is that right there is a big piece of news. But then secondly, he also said he can't speak on anything else that happens at the quarterback position from a roster makeup perspective, which was him basically saying, look, I realize Anthony Brown has, announced that he's transferring to Oregon, but at the same time, I can't talk about it because he, for whatever reason, 
I, I don't know why, but he, he can't talk about it. And, and, but we can. And so it's interesting that Shuck is named as the starting quarterback going out of spring ball. And yet they have Anthony Brown a day earlier who was added to the, to the puzzle, who's coming with full intentions of starting because he wouldn't have come to Oregon if he didn't have an idea that he, that wasn't going to be an option for him. Yeah, I wonder what Anthony Brown's response was to hearing Cristobal's comments. Um, not that they were shocking, and I think it's important for Cristobal to endorse Tyler Shuck at this point, too, after you do go out and add a grad transfer, right? Like, it makes sense that you want to, like, provide some confidence that they, the staff believes in him, and I think that's maybe what those comments were. But um, I, I remember right before spring started, we both agreed we didn't think Cristobal would name a starter at quarterback after spring, and uh, here we are with a much abbreviated spring, only four practices, and Cristobal actually comes out and says Tyler Shuck, Entered as the starter, he leaves as the starter. We're really excited about him, but uh, I, I don't think you can take that as writing off Anthony Brown at all. Uh, you don't bring him in to bring in a backup quarterback, you know. And I'm not saying you don't bring him in thinking he he could be the backup quarterback or that that could be the role he plays, but you bring him in with the expectation that like, hey, there's at least a chance he can start at quarterback. And based upon his career at Boston College so far, like. He has a lot more starting experience than Tyler Shuck does. Um, and so, like, I'm not completely writing off Anthony Brown. I think both of us have said before, you know, if we're being honest, that we think Tyler Shuck will be the guy, uh, even with this addition. But, like, Anthony Brown has you know, three years of starting experience. He was a solid, solid quarterback. Uh, his passing stats don't jump out at you like maybe uh, a Justin Herbert does, but they're certainly not unimpressive. Like, he had a... Solid, solid sophomore season. His numbers as a junior were good before he went down with an injury. Um, but, like, Matt, why, why would you say he could win the job? Like, what are some things you think about with Brown and you go, like, maybe he can beat out Tyler Shuck, or are there things that you see that way? Well, first of all, I, I think he he has experience. And I think that experience, whether it's not – at Oregon, he's he's got it nonetheless. He's played more college games. He's seen more defenses than Tyler Shuck has. And so maybe he steps into fall camp and he just hits the ground running. And if he can pick up the intricacies of Oregon's offense and play at a level that Joe Moorhead, the new offensive coordinator, wants out of the quarterback position, he's got a leg up because – he has seen more defenses on the in, in games, and you know, and knows the adjustments, and, and knows oh, this corner is shading over a little bit. He's he's probably you know going to be blitzing, or this linebacker is you know tilted this way a little bit, and you know typically that means he's going to be dropping back into a pass. I need to check into an audible, you know, and the audible might change, but the, still the decision is the same. Of this guy is doing this on defense, we need to change this play to something that's more of this. And he has that experience, while as Tyler Shuck does not. I also like the fact that he's played on a team and put up decent stats. I don't, I'm, I'm with you. They're not th- these amazing numbers. You know, he, he wasn't at an elite level, but they were still solid. They were still, you know, solid to good. And he did it at a school at Boston College that quite honestly doesn't have the type of athlete that Oregon does. So he That's was asking true. to he was asking to do more and produce more and, and carry the team more. Where where at Oregon, he won't have to do that. 
per se. I mean, he, he'll still have to run options and RPOs and, and, you know, the, the variances of all of that, but a swing pass to a Jalen Red at Oregon probably is going to result in better yardage than a swing pass to whoever the, the slot guy at Boston College was or, you know, the run game at Oregon is probably going to be easier to lean on than the run game at Boston College is. Or the, you know, the athlete that you're throwing, you know, passes to on, on fades at Oregon is going to be better than what Boston College has. Or at least I would hope. Uh, if we think of what Oregon is, they, they should be better in all areas than, than Boston College considering the two programs. But I think that, that's why I think he, he may win the job is the experience and that he's done it before, now is having better athletes around him. Yeah, and I think another thing that sort of adds to the unpredictability here, or, or maybe a possibility of Brown winning the job, is just that Joe Moorhead is a new offensive coordinator. We don't know exactly what this offense is going to look like. Another one of the unfortunate things about losing out on those spring practices is we got four practices to see the offense, which is frankly not enough to really know too much. But what we did learn is that, they were working on some option stuff. They were working on some RPO stuff. It sounds like they want to run the quarterback a little bit more. Maybe Brown's just a little bit better fit for that. Maybe he's a little bit more athletic and more agile. I actually don't know entirely. Based on the rushing stats Brown put up at Boston College, it's not like he tore the world up. And I know it's sort of confusing in college because they subtract sacks as rushing yards, so the numbers are a little bit – maybe a little bit – don't represent everything entirely to, to be fair to what Brown can do running, but – I don't see the running stats and think like, oh, this guy's a superstar dual threat runner. But maybe he is better than Shuck. And maybe his ability to run the football makes up for any lacking or shortcoming he has throwing the football. And that can be a difference maker. So I think there's a ton of things to question and wonder about kind of how he fits in. And I wish we had a little better, offer, uh, I guess, answers as to kind of what this offense is going to be and why it might benefit Brown over Shuck. But frankly and unfortunately, uh, we just didn't see them quite enough to really have those answers. At the same time, um, I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's, it'll be, I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But I think maybe, maybe the, the thing that could benefit Brown is it, just the fact that Moorhead's offense asks him to run the ball a little bit more. Maybe he's more effective in that area. I do wonder, and you br- you bring up a good point of how much better would Tyler have Shuck gotten if it wasn't for COVID shutting down spring football? That's a good like, point too. Like, could, could Tyler Shuck have basically come out and, and made it evident during spring ball that through 15 practices learning Joe Moorhead's offense that, look, this is my job. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who you bring in. It doesn't matter what player comes in. Unless it's Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence, this is my job. And, and I'm gonna, and I've shown it through 15 practices. I'm still getting better, but every practice I continue to get, you know, leaps and bounds better. How, with that not happening, how maybe this opens the door a little bit more for someone like Anthony Brown uh, to show to step in and have a chance to take this job away because Shuck is basically yeah yeah he has four he has four practices under his belt of learning Joe Moorhead's offense but it's not like he's night and day further ahead than than when, where, where Brown will be when he shows up. Oh, that's a good point too, Matt, because you're right. I think 15 practices under, you know, of leading this offense, of being quote unquote the starter, which is what they were terming him, of going against this defense as the starter in this offense, those are invaluable. 
Um, and, and maybe those could have been the difference between him taking another step and, and maybe, or maybe four practices was enough for Tyler Shuck and maybe he's a quick learner and he left and, and those comments from Cristobal are very genuine and they feel really, really, really good about Shuck and what he accomplished there. And, and maybe 11 more practices wouldn't have meant that much. I kind of doubt that's the case, but I do think that's a good point in terms of the 11 practices missed doesn't just stink for the team because the team loses those opportunities to kind of work together, but it stinks on an individual basis too because a guy like Shuck who clearly is working towards a starting job loses the opportunity to maybe take fuller ownership or, or to grow in this new offense to to follow up and take for, for more ownership so um, yeah another one of those kind of super unfortunate parts of this whole thing and maybe something you're right that maybe is kind of a, an evening of the playing field if you will for Anthony Brown is that Tyler Shuck didn't get more opportunity this spring to really work in it Joel Moorhead's offense and kind of master it. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audibles podcast. Appreciate you guys for listening. Look forward to two more coming out later this week. We'll have a mailbag on Wednesday, so send your questions in. You can go onto Twitter and just use the hashtag Odds and Audibles, and Eric will be able to find it, or you can tweet him or you can tweet me your questions. We'll collect the best ones. We'll answer them, and then on Friday we'll we'll do another uh, discussion type of show. We've got plenty of ideas. Tons of stuff to get to as well that we didn't touch in on. Some recruiting football news, again, keeps happening basically every day. Maybe we'll have some commitments for men's or women's basketball in the next week or so. So a ton to watch, a ton to cover. Even though sports aren't being played on the football field, there's still a ton of stuff out there. So appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.